At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 269. Welcome to the, oh wait, I already did that. I'm David McCraney. I rarely do what I'm currently doing, which is just start the show by talking to you and telling you things. I prefer a cold open. I like that straight to content style of making podcasts, but this episode's a bit different. We'll get right to the content in a second, but I want to briefly tell you what you're about to hear and why, because I'm on the road. I'm giving lectures right now about how minds change. Lots of them. I'm giving 12 lectures between now and December. I'm recording this in September and of 2023. And I, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Uh, I love this. Something's happened here recently where my book, the book I wrote, How Minds Change, which came out a year ago, has really found its audience. There's a lot of attention here currently, and I'm doing lectures in Nashville and Madison and New York and New Jersey and San Francisco and Montreal and Denver. I'm going to NASA at the end of the year, the Goddard Space Center. I'm going to ask them if I can go in that room and pretend I'm pressing buttons and I'm Ed Harris at the end of a movie or something. And hopefully they'll let me do that. I suspect they won't. But I love this. It's amazing to get a chance to go out. I, I love talking about it, giving demonstrations of how to and how not to change minds. It's great. And if you'd like me to come to your institution or organization, just contact me. We'll set it all up. So all that being said, this episode is about the one-year celebration of this book being out that was a big part of my life, putting it together, and continues to be a big part of my life now, telling people about it. And I'm going to play an episode of another podcast in which Michael Taft interviewed me about the book. I love this interview. I love Michael. I love his podcast, which is called Deconstructing Yourself. And I think you'll love all those things as well. He is a dear and close friend. So let me just say that. A cherished human being, a jewel of existence who I appreciate immensely. So you can feel the adoration back and forth in the episode that you're about to hear. I think you'll love this. I think you'll also love his show. Michael's a meditation teacher. He's a best-selling author and a mindfulness coach. He specializes in secular science-based mindfulness training. He's a really incredible human being. And if you're interested in science-based secular books about meditation and mindfulness, I highly recommend his book, The Mindful Geek. And I recommend meditating with him. He offers guided meditation at the Alembic in Berkeley, California. You can join them virtually over the internet. And there are links to all of that in the show notes for this episode. I also recommend his podcast, Deconstructing Yourself. It's all about entheogens and neurofeedback and brain hacking. If you're a Carl Sagan-loving, science-endorsing, evidence-based sort of person, a nerd, geek, or skeptic, or humanist who wants to know more about meditation and deep diving into what we do and do not know about that, 
That's what his podcast is about. Sam Harris will be a guest on there soon. I think many of you will love that episode in particular. So that's what I'm about to play. An episode of Deconstructing Yourself in which Michael Taft interviewed me about my book, How Minds Change, which just turned one. It's a great overview of the book if you haven't read it yet. But it's also a great conversation about it if you have, because it includes a lot of back and forth about cut content, behind the scenes stuff, and just what was going on in my life and in my mind. So all of that after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything, 
And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program with Michael Taft interviewing me on his program. McCraney, welcome back to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. It's great to have you here again. I'm so happy to be here. I just like hanging out with you, to be honest. So I'm really happy to be on this particular show and getting a chance to jam out on these ideas with you. Yeah. So just to refresh the minds of listeners, you were on the show maybe like a year and a half ago, maybe even two years ago. It seems like it was a bit. Yeah. Yeah. When you were writing the book called How Minds Change. And we talked a lot about that in one of my favorite podcasts ever by far. And when I got the most feedback from that I've ever received, I think people were just blown away by that. So dear listener, if you haven't heard that before you listen to this one, go back and listen to the episode called Talking with People About Things. And <laughs> we're going to pick up from there. Because we had a really great, deep, beautiful, and soulful conversation about talking to people about difficult topics and how minds change. And now, all these many months or even years later, the book has actually come out. So congratulations on that. It's on paper. These pieces of paper have ink marks on them. And, <laughs> and you can hold it in your hand and hand it over to somebody and go, look, I did that. Shut up. Uh, I know that's the real part of it. I don't know if that ever stops being bonkers. That box arrived. I opened it up because I worked on this book just past the six year mark. And I don't know what I expected would happen. I thought the thing from the back of the future was going to happen. I just sort of <laughs> stood there in silence and smirked at it for a while and then took a picture and then 
just sat down and went, huh, so now what happens? <laughs> yeah, here's the encapsulation of six years in this mm -hmm. pasteboard. Yeah, you know, I read the book. You sent me a PDF of it early on so I could get ready for the interview here. And I'm not just saying this. That is a great book. It is really cool. It reminds me of the interview because you were just using this word before we started recording about it, which is that it's old school journalism. Like you really went and you met all the people who were doing the real work. That is the research into how to change people's minds and what works and what doesn't. And you actually went and hung out with them and learned their techniques and talked to them one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. at great length and so on. And it really makes for a different kind of read than the usual book lately, which seems like it should have been a three-page email that's expanded <laughs> to 250 pages, you know. Yeah, I always wanted to do that. That's where I came from as far as journalism is concerned. Like I was really into like the electric Kool-Aid acid test and Frank Sinatra has a cold. All that kind of feature writing that was under the domain of literary journalism at the time. A little bit of Gonzo stuff was in there too. Can I ask you about Gonzo? Yeah. And I love John Jeremiah Sullivan and I love Michael Perry and that's my favorite stuff. That's the stuff that really gets me going. But I've been writing in that other style for a long time, that pop science style, that sort of Wikipedia with jokes, I guess you could say. One of the things that got me going on the book was that I had visited the leadership lab in Los Angeles who did deep canvassing. And I went there thinking I was going to make a podcast out of it. And I just felt that, oh, this should be a book feeling and visited several times. And I started thinking, well, let me talk to a researcher who understands belief. And I went to Jim Alcock, and he told me that it was much more complicated than just telling you what a belief is. And I knew that I should go visit people who either have changed their minds in very drastic, difficult ways. They've left cults or conspiracy theory communities or something like that. And then take what they tell me to scientists and say, could you help me understand this? And then launch off of that into wherever they tell me to go. Then spend time with people who are professional mind changers, like the deep canvassers, and then take that to scientists and say, well, tell me what you know about this and keep bouncing back and forth. And I realized that I did not have an authoritative voice going in because I was trying to understand this so much. It was an obsession, really. And my editor told me that's the arc the book should have. Trish Daly, Nikki Papadopoulos, and early on it was Eamon Dolan. They all, in different ways, suggested, what if the book starts out with you not understanding this and we go with you on a journey to understand it? And by the end, there is an authoritative voice, but the readers earned that with you. And that was the right decision. And I'm pretty sure I'll write every book going forward in that style. Yeah, it really presents it in a very compelling way because, again, as the reader, you're learning all this stuff with you as you learn it. And for real, like as you go visit and talk to these people, like all the work you did interviewing people who have left the Westboro Church mm -hmm. was just amazing. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And a lot of friends and family also were like, don't do that. <laughs> they were like, why would you do that? I was like, because I must. I must understand. And I bought a plane ticket. I rented a car. I drove straight into Topeka and just walked up to the door of Westboro Baptist Church. I thought that Westboro would be like at the end of a dirt road in a swamp or something with ravens circling it. <laughs> but it was just a house. It was just a regular suburban house in a regular suburban neighborhood. And just down the street, there's a Starbucks and, and a Sonic. And that neighborhood that they live in, the family has purchased all the houses in one block and they put 
privacy fence between the houses. So they sort of built a compound out of a suburban neighborhood. And I walked up the door and knocked on the door and I waited. It was super cold. I remember it was like, I may freeze to death before they opened the door. But sure enough, somebody opened the door and there's an American flag upside down flapping behind me. There are these marquees that say these horrible, heinous things about LGBTQ people. And the door opens and this young man wearing a very crisp, silky pink shirt said, uh, can I help you? He was clearly a little afraid. There were cameras everywhere too, because I think they're really afraid of being firebombed or something. And I told him, I'm just here to go to your Valentine's Day services. It was Valentine's weekend. And he said, did you call ahead? I told him, I emailed you. Nobody emailed back. And he looked around the corner. He poked his head out to see if there was like a SWAT team or something with me. And he said, okay, we'll just come in and be very quiet. So I went in and I sat down and I went through their services. And one of the stranger things, they had printed out the entire sermon, but it had all the asides in it. Like if you were telling somebody a story and you're like, you know, the other day, well, it wasn't the other day, it was Tuesday. Anyway, someday like that, all of that was like written out in the text already. It's like a transcript of somebody channeling it or whatever. Yeah, it was a transcript ahead of the fact. It was strange. And I sang the hymns with them. I listened to the sermon. It wasn't fire and brimstone like I expected. It was more mainstream, I guess. Then the next day, of course, they left to go protest Hallmark headquarters in Kansas City. They protested the addition of same-sex Valentine's Day cards. But as I write in the book, the thing for me, and I remember when I did the audiobook, I had to take a really long break because it was very emotional. You know, I lost a very close friend. His name is Mikey. He died at the age of 39 from pancreatic cancer, and he was bullied and he was gay. He didn't get a chance to see the change that took place in America, the same-sex marriage become law and everything. I have an uncle who is not completely out of the closet in some places. As a child, I saw him bullied and scared. And I, to be at Westboro and to think about all that and doing the audiobook, I had to repeat a lot of the things they said and to take on their voices for the listener. But sitting there in that church, the thing that was most unsettling was that it was familiar. That's how I say it in the book. I had grown up in a Southern Baptist church and had gone there every Sunday, and this just felt like church. It just felt like, oh, Westboro Baptist Church is more a Baptist church than anything, at least when they're in their pews. And they had figured out this gimmick that they used to troll people and, and get famous. It was really unsettling. And when I spoke to people a little bit and left, I sort of ran across the street to the Rainbow House this organization has purchased the house across the street from Westboro and they painted it in, in the rainbow flag colors. So there's like a counter protesting house across the yeah, street. Yeah, yeah. They bought it for like $40,000 because the Westboro <laughs> ruined the prices in the area. And there was a, a young woman on the porch and she just let me in. They turned it into a halfway home for LGBT youth. And I interviewed her, the interviews in the book. I asked, like, what is it like to be across from here? And they said, you know, every morning they get up, they drink their coffee, they watch their neighbors come outside and change the marquee, raise and lower the flag. They, like, say hey to each other, like they're in a 1950s sitcom. And I said, that says something, doesn't it? It does say something. Like, I feel like in a previous era, one of you two would have burned each other's houses down. <laughs> and she was so eloquent in her insights that, they are aware of how everyone has changed around them. They are aware of their isolation. And a lot of people in the community, they know them, they know who they are, they work with them. And they ended up being a very discovered moment in the story. Of course, from there, I 
interview two people who left Westboro Baptist Church, uh, Megan Phelps Roper, Zach Phelps Roper, and talk about what took place and how they off ramped out of the organization. But yeah, that was a huge moment. I was worried that it would come across as stunt journalism or something, but it ended up being really meaningful to me in a way I didn't expect. And it carries a lot of authenticity and just, it's really fascinating to hear their stories. So that part of the book was really remarkably touching to read. Again, if you haven't read the book or listened to the earlier podcast we did, the mood of what David is saying is not go in there and change somebody's mind with a crowbar and a sledgehammer. It's quite the opposite. It's like all about very respectful dialogue and human connection and really personally being vulnerable and so on. So it's a real antidote to the current climate. Now, I know you've been doing lots of interviews, so probably you've been getting this question a lot. Because I know you so well, I assure you the answer will not be whatever boilerplate thing has imprinted inside my mind from doing a lot of promotion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, one of the main features of the book is just how big the shift was in America from everyone totally against same-sex marriage one day and the next day everyone is for it. And it happened in a short period, like Mm -hmm. 2000, what, 10 or something. I forget the dates. And just how can change like that happen? In fact, the last chapter of the book is about social change like that. Mm -hmm. But now at this moment in history that we're recording the podcast, it's like that's about to be rolled back potentially. It feels like it. I'm curious how you're reading that socially right now. Sure. And I've tried to address this on my own podcast. I've had a, the last two episodes, we've talked specifically about the Roe versus Wade thing that as we're recording this, that's something that's just recently happened. When it, with same-sex marriage, the attitudes in the United States, the, the public opinion was against it. And right now, the attitudes in the United States concerning abortion, the majority of Americans, a pretty large majority of Americans, do not agree with the decision that just took place. Yeah, it's a, a vast majority, like over 75%. Right. So this is not an instance of us rolling back anything as far as people's actual opinions and attitudes and values and beliefs. This is an example of political maneuvering. This is a uh, part of a chess game. A Game of Thrones thing is taking place. This was a long process of figuring out how to create a court case that could make its way to a, a Supreme Court that would see it in a very particular way, or at least decide on a very particular way. But I do understand, like the implications are vast and people's lives are being affected right now. I feel like if anything, this is more of a death rattle. Like a last hurrah of this mood. Yeah. This is, as they'd say in psychology, an extinction burst. This is the last clawing at the system to keep something around that is this country that we're living in is over that. We want to live in a different world with different laws. And I address this in How Minds Change. We talk about abortion early on. I did not expect it would be so relevant. But in when I walk around with deep canvassers in the beginning, when I was visiting them, I visited them three times. We talked about transphobia two times. And one time we talked about abortion rights. And door to door, we talked to people about that. So I do understand that. There's that sense. Since when we're recording this, there are issues like gun control, immigration, and abortion that seem like oh, wait, we're back here again. But it's one of those things where the attitudes of the country are shifting in all three of those issues. And the political process about what is and is not a law, a regulation, those things are in conflict. And that happens very often in the periods of of great change. But it is marvelous to me to see how quickly 
those two things take place. I talk about it in the book of this. I call it this like punctuated equilibrium. The concept from evolution, yeah. In social science, there's a similar thing. They call it critical juncture theory. Yeah, there's a lot of names for it. There's like a dozen names for it. But the phenomena is similar. It's one of those things, just like evolution itself, natural selection itself is something you can see in a lot of different areas, not just biology. You have these long periods of stasis and then this very rapid periods of change when it comes to public opinion and the attitudes and values and norms that beliefs that underlie all that. And if you want to, I could talk about this for a bit. That was one of the things that I wanted to understand most. That's what got me into the book. Because it was that thing you said, like 60%, roughly 60% of the country was opposed to same-sex marriage. And then over the course of 12 years, that flipped. But the flipping moment took place very rapidly over the course of like three years. And I think I said this in the last interview. I just imagine, what if you took all those people and put them in a time machine and sent them back 10 years? Like they would argue with themselves. They would claim that they always felt that way. (laughs) <laughs> and after that shift, you know, people often would say, yeah, but of course this is how you should feel about this, which means they could have thought that at any time. It was always available to them the way they currently feel, but there was some reason why they didn't. There was some reason why they didn't change. I wanted to understand that. And I also wanted to understand what happened in their brains, like at the neurological level going all the way up in the interim period there. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but I do feel that feeling that everyone else has of, oh no, are we going backwards? Are we slipping? Are we going to be in the handmaid's tale soon? I would urge people to take a look at the actual polling on people's attitudes on this and how different it is from the Supreme Court decision. Yeah. Certainly the opinions of the people in the country have not changed yet. Although it's interesting to see the media treating it like it's normal or something. For sure. There's a danger there. For certain members of any community, the legislation will alter the way they feel about the issue in a certain way. People who are low information voters or don't have any investment in the issue, who keep it very abstract, where it's just a philosophical debate for them. Those attitudes are very ambivalent in the first place. And so they they can fluctuate based off of these incremental changes to regulations and all. But I think the good news is this also has activated, at least for me, I'm speaking as someone who is not okay with that decision. It has also activated an incredible number of people who will be working very hard to change those laws back or at least create new laws, maybe new arguments, new laws, new court cases that will be less likely to be easily shifted by one Supreme Court decision. Good. So let's leave that there. I want to ask you something about your own learning process in working on the material for this book and a couple things there. One is something that I found really interesting is, you know, deep canvassing and street epistemology and these other mind change systems that you investigate very deeply in the book all seem to kind of converge, right? Since human brains are human brains, different researchers really deeply investigating how to change minds seem to be converging on a really similar way of doing that, that we talked about last time, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which basically involves not trying to change people's minds as much as trying to understand how they think and just asking them questions about their reasons and really connecting with them in a respectful way. I'm curious, is one able to do this on oneself? That is one of the most interesting parts of it. I know specifically with motivational interviewing and street epistemology, motivational interviewing is something that is a therapeutic model that all of these techniques are employing in a certain way, even though they weren't aware that they were doing so. It's like you said that most of these people came up with these things independently, yet they seem to follow the same order. They seem to have the same tenets. And no matter where you built the first airplane, it was going to look like an airplane. It's because you're having to go up against certain challenges 
that anyone trying to build an airplane would have to go up against. This is similar in the sense that there are things like reactants and base level resistance, justifications, rationalization, all these things that brains do to bypass that or not to inflame that in a way that would get a person to want to eject from the conversation. You would have to do certain things. And that's why the techniques are also similar. But when it comes to your own mind, there are two things in the book that I consider the peanut butter and chocolate of my comeuppance. <laughs> I used to very much proselytize the power of justification and rationalization. And it's that thing where if, if you want a piece of chocolate cake, you will find a reason to eat it. Or I've said this in other interviews, when a person is falling in love with someone and you ask them, what reasons do they have to like this person? They'll say the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they cut their food, the weird music they listen to, the strange television shows they like. And then if that person is breaking up with that same person, you could ask, well, why are you breaking up? And they will say, well, it's the way they talk and the way they walk and the way they cut their food and the awful music and the dumb shows they watch. Like those things remain the same from one to the other. They became reasons for or against thanks to the fact that the underlying motivation changed, which is something that we do when we argue with other people. We will put forth after this process of being motivated by our attitudes and our identity and our prejudices and our anxieties, we go looking at all the information available and we cherry pick that which justifies and can be used as rationalizing elements for that thing that drove us out there. And then after a while, that collection of justifications and rationalizations and explanations and reasons, it can feel like that's the source of the feeling. And that's often what people will do. You'll say, why are you for or against this issue? Why do you believe this thing so strongly? And they'll say, because this, whatever thing they have in their collection. When that's not actually the thing, of course, that's just something that came after that process. And then when you meet with another person sometimes who disagrees with you and you'll say, why do you feel this way? They'll do that. And you'll say, well, I think you should look at this. And you'll have that battle of justifications where you just dump all of your collections on top of each other. And does it usually work as I point out in the book? So this is as part of a comeuppance for me is that I used to tell people that's why you couldn't change people's minds because that's what we do. And I never liked that answer. And it wasn't until someone actually came up to me at a lecture and asked me how to help with their father who had fallen into a conspiracy theory. And I told them there's nothing you could do. It's, I really did not like the answer. And I felt bad about it. I wish I could go back in time and, and change that. But so it put me on a path of like, I need to understand this better. That was not very good advice. I don't think. And I used to look at human reasoning as very flawed and irrational. And thanks to this work, I see it more as biased and lazy. And there's a reason that's important. When it comes to working on yourself, there's these two things I would ask people to understand. One is comes from the interactionist model. That's something by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. And they have this beautiful understanding of how the mind works that I advocate for a lot in the book. We have one system for producing arguments and we have one system for evaluating arguments. And it makes total sense in the environment in which all this evolved. Of course, as an individual, you're going to come up, if you're trying to make a group decision, you can think of it like the muscles of your arm did not evolve to paint paintings, but you can definitely create marvelous artwork with those muscles. The cognitive mechanisms for which we produce and evaluate arguments did not evolve under selective pressures to consider logic and propositions and philosophical concepts and the truth of things in that way but they can be employed to do that. The speculation is that these things evolved more for generating arguments in a group setting so that we could get on the same page. We could converge on a plan of action to solve a shared goal or face a shared problem. And 
in that framing, each individual should produce an argument from a very biased and lazy perspective. And what I mean by that is, let's say there's three of you, you think you're going to go into the woods and could do some hunting. And one member of your party's like, uh, we shouldn't go there. there. There are bears there. And you're like, why do you say that? Like, I was attacked by a bear once 15 years ago. I'm telling you, we don't go in that spot of the woods. And then the other member of your party, they're younger. They're like, I go there all the time. I've never seen a bear once. This is totally safe. Both of those arguments are very lazy and also they're very biased. But I would like to hear both of those because it's clear that, that both people are wrong and right. And there's a middle truth that we're trying to get at of whether or not we should proceed. So we are very naturally inclined to do that sort of thing. If you have five people after a movie trying to figure out where they're going to go eat, that's the kind of arguing we do. We come up with something that's very biased on our behalf, but it's also the first thing that comes to mind. And then you offload the labor to the group to deliberate and debate and consider the problems with everybody's arguments so that we can get to a communal decision on what you're going to do. That solves one side of the thing, but it also presents the problem of, well... What do you do when you're alone? <laughs> and then that's the issue is uh, yeah. when you're alone, you're going to produce arguments, but you're not going to evaluate them because you're waiting for that offloading process. So you still do it in a very biased and lazy way, but the evaluation is often stolen from you if you don't have a chance to interact with other people. And if you do interact with other people, like in an online environment, it's often a group of people who have clustered together because they have very similar viewpoints or similar anxieties, or they're trying to get validated in the same way. And so what you end up with is polarization in the sense that every argument is good argument in that group. The people want everybody to be right about the very thing that they've collected over. So that's the peanut butter. The chocolate is, I was very fortunate to meet Tom Stafford, who's a psychologist at a Sheffield. And he took all of that I was just talking about, the interactionist model, and he suggested this something he calls the truth wins scenario. So the thing is, all the psychological stuff that I had been talking about for many years, a lot of the pop psychology that made its way into the, the popular books of about a decade ago, it was all based on research that was done on individuals in isolation. Like you get a lot of people together, but you test them one at a time and you combine their answers. And since people are so biased and lazy in their reasoning, when they get the answers wrong more often than not, it looks like, oh, look how awful we are at this. But usually in that environment, if you have like a hundred people together, they perform pretty well. At least they see through whatever everyone else is kind of falling into. So Tom imagined, what if we took some of the old psychological studies like that and we put them to people in groups instead and let them talk it out? And he found that, and this is, he's not the only person that's done this, but Everyone who's done this has found like, we're not as bad at this as it seems because in a group, we seem to sort it all out. I can give you an example of this. This is something I like to do in lectures nowadays. So I want you to imagine like you have like a hundred people in a room, 50 people, and you say to the group, this is from the cognitive reflection task. If it takes five machines, five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take a hundred machines to make a hundred widgets? And so if you're listening to the show, to come up with an answer and just keep it like the first thing that comes to mind. So I'll ask that of a group of people and then I'll say, okay. Now, does anyone in this group feel very strongly that they have the right answer to that question? And usually one, two, three people will raise their hand and I'll say, okay, what's the answer? And they'll say five minutes. And what I love is the audience will often go, oh, because it's like, what? Well, I, oh, I don't get it. And I said, could you please explain your reasoning? And 
they'll say something along the lines of if it takes five machines, five minutes to make five widgets, then it takes one machine, five minutes to make one widget. If we have a hundred machines working together, then each can make a widget in five minutes. So there'll be a hundred widgets in five minutes. And then the audience goes, ah, and this is all in line with what Tom Stafford says typically happens. You go from a group of people reasoning along, you have a majority incorrect room to now you have a group of people reasoning together and everyone's right. Almost all wrong, everyone's right. And that's the interactionist approach being displayed in a group like that. And he calls that the truth win scenario. I love this so much because it points out how the context in which we do a lot of our reasoning makes us feel like we are reasoning together when really we're actually reasoning alone, Twitter, Facebook, things like that. We're often just reasoning by ourselves and then dumping it into a big pile. It's that evaluation process. These platforms aren't really suited to it very well. And Tom told me this, and I want everyone to take this with them. I can't stop thinking about it. He said, germs were always a problem for human beings, but it wasn't until we built cities that it became a real existential issue because plagues and disease and so on. And he said, to solve that at the society level, we had to develop sanitation. At the individual level, we had to develop like boiling water and washing our hands. And he said that misinformation and all the other things that go along with weirdness in groups, prejudice and so on, Misinformation was always a problem for human beings and groups, but then when we got this new information ecosystem, the internet, it became existential. And generationally, we're going to have to learn the equivalent of sanitation and washing our hands when it comes to that. And he's very optimistic that it can be done. This is where his work is right now, taking all that stuff and seeing if you can create online environments where the truth wins happens more often than not. So being given that, what can you do as an individual? Well, these techniques, these persuasion techniques you talked about, all of them can be turned inward because at the end of the day, they're all about the same thing. Persuasion, as I talk about in the book, is not coercion. It's not trying to defeat your opponent with facts. It's not a debate with a winner or a loser. It's more about examining your own thinking and see how it could or could not align with certain messages. And getting out of that debate frame is something you can also do with yourself, strangely enough. I recommend that first step is so interesting to me where in all these conversation techniques, you open up with trying to prevent reactants, but that's something that has to do with two people. And then you ask for a claim or you talk about the issue and you ask on a scale from zero to 10, if it's a fact-based claim, you say, how certain are you from zero to 10? How confident are you that this is true or this is false? And if it's an attitude-based issue, you say from zero to 10, like, you know, how strongly do you feel about it? Like 10 would be, and you imagine some extreme scenario and zero, you imagine some other extreme scenario. The, the thing that makes that work is the next question is, why does that number feel right to you? And then moving off of that, like, why not this number one at this number? So you can imagine if you're working on yourself, it could be very simple. Like, how do you feel like Top Gun Maverick, <laughs> right? Like you could, you could say, <laughs> I don't know, I really liked it. I think I'd give it like an eight. Okay. And then you're talking to yourself, like, why an eight? It's a different frame. The frame of, did I like it? Yes or no. And then the frame of, I'd give it an eight. That's feels like I've answered the question. But then when I ask, well, why did I give it an eight? Why not a seven? Why not a seven? Why not a six? And you can feel yourself spooling out from there. If you ask this of another person, there's that moment where people go, um, well, that um, well is a hugely powerful thing that's taking place in the other person. They are completely shifting out of one way of making sense of the world to another. And I guess when they step out of those clothes into the others, there's an unwell moment that has to take place. That, um, 
Well, you know, think about it. And I can tell you, I have watched so many videos of deep canvassing the street epistemology and others where all you have to do is set that up for another person and then hold space for it. And then to answer your question, how do you apply this to yourself? That's what these techniques do. They simply give you permission to do that, or they encourage you to give that a shot, and then they hold space as you do so. So in the end, the person is changing their own mind. They are doing it to themselves. And they start to produce these counter arguments so often for the position that they just expressed. You've probably done this. I've seen people do this where you like they walk out of a play or something. Like, what'd you think of it? And like, oh, I loved it. It was great. I'm like, what'd you like about it? And they're like, oh, you know, it was good. You know, I like when they did this. I mean, I, there there was some problems with that, and there was you know, and then by the end of it, they say they'll they'll say like, well, it wasn't it wasn't that great, but it was pretty good. If you had like a little YouTube slider for that person, you could go all the way to the beginning and go, it was great, and then blah, 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 to the end. Eh, it wasn't that good. What? It was great. It wasn't that good. It was great. It wasn't that good. So we already know, have this ability and capability and power. It's just that we have so much coming at us and there's so many things to worry about that we don't often have time to take a step for that kind of introspection and metacognition. And there's almost nothing that you have ever thought, felt, or believed. There's no attitude, value, or concept that you hold in high regard that you couldn't apply that to, that you couldn't say, where are you on a scale? Why is that number right? Why aren't you this number or this number? And what comes out of that is oftentimes, and I've seen this in person, a person discovering their true opinion, like the first time they've ever actually put any effort into it. Even though it feels like we've done that for everything already, it's often not true, right? And you can offer that to yourself. And I'll say one last thing to answer that question. And I may have said this in the previous interview, and I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but Will Storr, who writes books similar to mine, he gave me this beautiful thought experiment you can do this in combination with the number game that I just gave you. Whatever the issue is, and it could be very specific or very broad, but you ask yourself, concerning this thing, am I right about everything? <laughs> and if the answer is no, then ask, what am I wrong about? And if the answer is, well, I don't know, then ask, how come you don't know? And what would you do to change that? I find that incredibly powerful. Yeah, so we can skip a lot of the steps that are interpersonal when we're working with ourselves, like the rapport and all that. We were going to assume we have that. But coming right down to the core of asking yourself these questions, just lightly introspect your already existing position. Yeah, I mean, there's a deeper step after that, too. After you unspool all these reasons that you say are why I feel the way I feel, as we said earlier, those reasons often are the first things that come to mind, and they're often just justifications and rationalizations. You can then ask yourself, you know, what method have I used to judge the quality of those reasons? And it's the method where the epistemology comes into play. Like, how did I vet that reason? And it's easier with another person, but working on yourself, you can dig in pretty deep and start to question whether or not you did your due diligence when it came to producing that reason. So interesting. And so have you used this on yourself very much, David? <laughs> I've tried. It's not easy, is it? I think, especially when it came to this very particular topic, this book was written off and on during some really difficult times in my own life. And there are parts of the book about post-traumatic growth and how much all of that maps onto these same principles. That desire to say, okay, how much am I fooling myself? How honest am I being with myself? How much of what I'm doing is for the sake of some sort of validation? I'm trying to create some sort of transactional relationship with the world where I'm looking for a reward more than I'm looking for some kind of creative outcome that, that tells the truth of myself to myself and others, 
all of that became front and center, I think, in the writing of this book. And it's one of those things that if you don't keep a grip on it, it'll slip through your fingers. And if you grip it too hard, you'll strangle it. So yeah, it definitely is one of those things that I've carried with me. And in the sense that writing this book got me very fascinated with therapy, and I had never really committed to therapy until somewhere in the middle of this process. And once I was there, I was more open to it than I'd ever been before, because I felt the value of taking advantage of another person's grace to open space and hold it for you to explore these things. And that is one of the things I got out of all this was, okay, now I understand what therapy is for and I'm willing to go in there. Yeah. It's so interesting how even therapy is, you're not on your own, it's interpersonal. And there's something about this process that does, it's almost like what you're saying about the group wisdom, where it's like having more than one person there really helps. In the book, you know, we may have talked about this last time, but I talk about the dress. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The dress is black and blue for some people, white and gold for others. And in the book, I explore the neuroscience behind that. I explore the neuroscience because I want to get to this concept called surf pad in neuroscience. Substantial uncertainty of the presence of ramified or forked prior assumptions yields a disagreement. It's a very mouthy way of saying all the priors we bring to ambiguous moments in our lives lead us to disambiguate it in our own personal way and other people will disambiguate it in their own personal way but we're not really aware of that it just feels like the truth of our assumptions is the truth and that makes the disagreements we have after a process like that seem odd thanks to naive realism and other things it feels like there's no way i could be wrong about this clearly you are wrong about this and with the dress i talk about how if you entered into a debate frame on that particular issue where I'm trying to be right. I'm trying to prove you're wrong. I'm trying to win. I'm trying to make sure I don't lose. The way I see it is the way it is. If you win, you still lose everything. You, the other person does too. You would never understand the actual truth of that if you weren't able to get out of that debate frame and say, let's not face off. Let's go shoulder to shoulder and try to investigate. Why do you think we disagree on this? And when you do that, you can say, well, why do people see it this way? Why would somebody see it differently? And that is something that's applicable to any sort of disagreement where the intuitive response is, I have to debate, I have to win. If you get out of that face-off frame into the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder frame, there's that opportunity to Venn diagram with the other person because you probably are both wrong and both right in ways that would never come out of that conversation unless you went shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with the intention of investigating, why do we disagree? Yeah. And I mean, what situation in the world isn't nebulous to some degree, right? So we can apply this to almost everything. And as a sidebar, I feel like that particular part of the book had a whole fascinating connection to other stuff that I've been looking into because there's a whole a Bayesian approach to human sensory processing that is really important, really fascinating, really interesting in research in the meditation world right now. So that whole idea about our priors really affecting what we see and a lot of that being under the hood, as it were, it's very, very interesting, really cool. It was one of the last things I was able to put in the book, and I was adamant about this. My editors, I think they were totally okay if I didn't go there because once you wade into philosophical places, you know, you can very quickly find yourself in a semantic swamp or just keep digging and thinking and digging. And I'll start getting to that place that you get where you start thinking, maybe I should be a cobbler. <laughs> like, really, what do we know about anything? You know, that place that you can very quickly go to when you get into deeply philosophical explorations. I knew that in the book, I didn't want to get to the persuasion stuff until about 
halfway or, or farther. And it's, it's, that's where it is now. It's about page 200. I wanted to build you up to that. And I knew that I didn't want the title of the book to be how to change people's minds. That's not the idea. I wasn't out to write the updated version of how to win friends and influence people. I wanted to actually explore how do minds change. And to do that, I wanted to get started neurons and work my way up, but I could never find anything that wasn't the Wikipedia with jokes version of telling you that. And I was given that wonderful gift of Pascal Wallace and Michael Karlovich who had explored the dress. And I had gone to New York to do a show about uh, post-truth things with Jay Van Babel. And he had suggested that we bring in Pascal Walsh, who had something new that was related to what I was exploring. And he talked to me all about SurfPad. And I entertained that and found Pascal to be one of the most incredibly strange, sort of uh, Jeff Goldblumy German physicists, psychologists you could ever imagine. And he was adamant that there was real insight into the dress and to Surpad and extrapolating that out. And that was the way I was able to get into that in the book. And I go from there into like umwelts and how different animal consciousnesses and bounded cognition within different perceptual inputs. And what is it like to be a bat? All that kind of stuff. Reality tunnels, that whole world, which I love. I know you love it too. I jam out on that forever. Oh yeah. And I talked about it just enough to hopefully get the reader spinning and then we move up from that into assimilation and accommodation and the way brains update and how they deal with surprise and information that seems counterattitudinal, counterfactual, resistance. And it's a great foundation just to stand on to go up through the meat of the book, which is how do minds change and why do they resist? And just for the record, those socks are white and the Crocs are pink. <laughs> I love that. I saw someone who recently read the book put that on Twitter yesterday, just that image. And you can have a QR code in the books for people to look at the pictures. And uh, I have it all over at my website. I had not seen that put up yet to see what people do. And sure enough, people are, all, are already arguing, like, what are you talking about? How can they be pink? Like, they're they're clearly you know, gray. The, the, the socks are white. No, they're green. I love that. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, to prove they understood the dress, they replicated it by doing an experiment with socks and Crocs. And they took a pair of pink Crocs and white socks and over-illuminated them and overexposed them in very green light, only green light. And some people look see the resulting image and they will see the socks as white and the Crocs as pink, whereas others will see the socks as green and the Crocs as all sorts of things. Sometimes they see them mostly as gray. But it's phenomenal to see it take place. And the correlating factor, typically the older a person is, the more they see the socks as white and the Crocs as pink. Even though the pixels ain't those pixels, you're changing the image after the fact in your head to make up for what it ought to be. And that's sort of the essence of SurfPad. So interesting. Something that got me really curious in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong about the assertion I'm about to make, but you brought up a really interesting point. And then as far as I could tell, you didn't follow up on it, which of course we can't follow all the threads in a book, but I was like, I want you to follow up on this. There's a chapter that we took out. Oh no. I just started a sub stack. I'm going to put it on there eventually. Once I get finished promoting the book, I'll put it up there. The chapter that was taken out, I went to the Conscious Life Expo and that's a spirituality expo that also is a safe place for anti-vaxxers to go to. And I went there for the anti-vaxxers. And I'm talking about MMR anti-vaxxers, not COVID. Anti this is pre-COVID. And I take that because I want to talk about the CDC attempted to change people's minds about those vaccines. They tried the fact-based approach and the fact-based approach actually generates a backfire effect. People who are given facts about vaccines who don't want to get vaccinated after receiving the information, they become even less likely to get vaccinated. 
and launch off of that into the different aspects of cognitive empathy that I wanted to explore where you have to match the values of the other person. And then I go into the fact that the backfire effect is an, is an example of counter arguing. So the reason motivational interviewing that was created in the therapeutic setting is because of reactants and other factors. When a person's in therapy, especially if the client is there because of alcoholism or drug abuse, and they want to see what they can do about altering their behavior. There was this problem that occurred over and over again in therapeutic settings where the person would leave more likely to engage in the behavior than if they had never come to therapy at all. And there was a lot of work that was done to try to figure out what was going on. And it all boiled down to when the professional in that setting tells you what you ought to be doing, tells you what you should be doing, or makes you feel any kind of shame or guilt over it, people tend to experience reactance. They feel their autonomy is, is at stake. Well, also the therapist is holding down that side of the ambiguity. That's right. So you hold down the other side. That's right. You're right on top of it. And the idea is that when you feel that desire to argue and they're holding down the other side of it, all you produce are arguments for continuing to do the thing, right? And so motivational interviewing was established with that whole scale thing where I say, you know, how much would you like to do it or where are you at in the scale? If I wanted you to see that maybe Top Gun Maverick is not an eight, and I ask you, why didn't you give it a 10? That's the direction I would talk to you so that you would produce counter arguments for it being higher. And those counter arguments will be new arguments that you created on your own that I did not copy paste into you. There's no reactance taking place. And you leave the conversation with more arguments against the thing than when you came in. That's a motivational interviewing technique that you would say, ask people to create arguments against drinking or against you know whatever it is they've come to therapy for the backfire effect, and I've written about this extensively, and we understand it much better than when I first wrote about it. That's pretty much what's going on there. As a person, somehow from the way that the information is being presented, they're generating new counter arguments in their mind that weren't there before. So they leave the interaction less likely to do the thing or more likely, depending on the thing. The storytelling thing you're asking about, that was in that chapter because I explore something called narrative transport. And this is the work of Melanie Green and... The reason this stuff was taken out is the book was 45,000 words too long. And so we had to do some cutting. <laughs> so I have a whole extra book. A whole extra book. <laughs> yes. And I talk about this wonderful experiment where they were trying to encourage people in Latin America to get vaccinated and to avoid a cervical cancer. And there was a lot of pushback in the community in particular cultures because you, know, you have to be so young. It's a suggestion in some communities that you're inviting a person to be sexually promiscuous. And they were having to deal with those very, very, very basic attitudes that would cause a person to be very against it, to have a very negative affect when considering it. And they created this video where they had a older women in the family are teaching the younger women how to cook certain items. And in the process of doing so, they talk about sexuality. They talk about how important it is to be careful and to take precautions and so on. And they had a really high success rate. And I follow that all the way through for a while. The real importance of storytelling is twofold. When it comes to the non-judgmental listening in all the persuasion techniques like deep canvassing, you are listening to them, one person tell their story, and then you give them almost as like an act of reciprocal altruism. Let me tell you a little bit about my story. And that framing is very powerful because the, all the research into how people take in information via a storytelling vehicle indicates that if you're transported narratively by, the, by what someone's telling you, it feels just like they're just helping you relive something. They're doing a little virtual reality thing with you where they're giving you all the pieces so that you can imagine it. And if a person's reading a book 
they're, they're experiencing that or they you know, even when we're watching a movie, we're experiencing that. And we all have that experience where we're watching a movie or reading a book and something happens, it's kind of off and we feel the immersion get broken. Narrative transport is that state of immersion where you forget that you're watching a movie, you forget that you're reading a book. And there are several aspects of that that, that can enhance that experience. But the takeaway is that when you are in narrative transport fully, you cease to counter argue. You know, you can be watching like Breaking Bad and you're like compelled by this terrible person doing terrible things. It's not till the show ends that you say, oh, you really shouldn't be doing that. I don't know how I feel about Walter White or whatever. In the story, you don't produce all the counter arguments that you would if you were having a debate or an argument with someone. And it allows for a lot of information that would be ejected to connect to you in a certain way that requires you to introspect as to how it connected with you and you'll take it forward. And that's why a lot of the things have really shifted our understanding of ourselves and of society and have propelled us into great changes that have cascaded across cultures have come from incredibly compelling works of art that have transported people to the extent that they could not counter argue against it. And I talk about all those things in that cut section that I will appear somewhere one day. <laughs> Are we going to get a second part of the book or is it just going to appear as posts on your website? Or I'm going to give it away for free. I just feel like I want people to read it and I want to shape it up so that these things can stand alone. I just started a newsletter as well. I'll probably put it out there. Anyone who wants to find it can go to, to davidmccraney.com or I'll put it on youarenotsosmart.com. Either way, it'll go out there so people can find it. I can't wait to read it. That was really intriguing. Something that we discovered when I was working at Sounds True and people were teaching usually some kind of meditation technique or prayer technique or something like that. And so it's basically just the how-to, how to do it. But everyone stopped listening through the whole how-to. It just, somehow it lost all compellingness. Unless the teacher told the story. And it almost didn't matter if the story was related to what they were teaching. Yeah. But the minute they told a story, all of a sudden you could intake the technique. All the interest went up, the energy went up. Yeah. I love that you're telling me this. Please send me some information on that. I would like to learn more about what you're talking about. We didn't write a paper about it. It was just in the editorial, among us creating programs, yeah. we realized story is necessary. Yeah. And furthermore, I got so interested in that, that I ended up deciding maybe this is the real way. Rather than sitting around trying to teach people to meditate, you just tell stories about transformation. And it's just a very intriguing idea because the impact is so much greater. Deep canvassing really leaned into this a whole lot. It's very important for the other person to tell their story. And it's also important that you share yours at some point near the end for all these reasons. Because once you've established really good rapport and trust with the person, that storytelling vehicle becomes even more powerful. Anyone who's interested in this, there's a couple books I would recommend. I don't think they do all the way at the bottom of the ocean deep dive, but they get you pretty close. There's The Storytelling Animal by Jonathan Goschel. And then again, my friend Will Storr, he has a book very recently, The Science of Storytelling. Both of those point to this concept, this argument, this theory that we have in all the cognitive sciences that the reason stories are told in the way they're told is that's the way we tend to make sense of our own selves in retrospect. Like memory seems to be laid down in a protagonist struggle, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis model of storytelling. Even the act structure of storytelling seems to be something that very close to how we make sense of our own selves, especially in retrospect. It's also how we tell other people about something that has happened to us. When we like recall the past, we tend to tell the other person in that framing. There's something 
most likely in the neurological substrate that is set up to present information in that way and to receive it in that way. And you can tell when you watch a movie, read a book, watch a play, if they are really fitting into that, if they are syncing up with that way of presenting information, you get immersed. And that's also true for interpersonal communication. That's why like storytelling, we, we get transported, we're inside the other person's experience, and we do not counter-argue, because what is there to counter-argue against? We're just listening. And if they have an epiphany within the story, then we will share the epiphany, and something will happen to us that's very similar. We get this nice vicarious updating, assimilation, accommodation by proxy. It's an incredible thing. And there's plenty of evidence. I feel like we could go back 2,000 years and there's somebody who's like, yeah, of course. I told you, so. <laughs> like, uh, in the book, I think Dave Fleischer said, you know, we didn't invent the idea of somebody talking to another person and doing so in storytelling format. If you go online and, and get into an argument, very rarely does one person say, go, sit back and let me tell you a little story. But oftentimes, even when I've disagreed with a person really strongly about something, when they tell me how they arrived at their position via a story, I actually truly then understand. And often I experience a certain kind of empathy that was denied before that. Yeah, it opens up a whole channel of communication and learning. One of the things that uh, my wife and I share, are we really like to learn together. And so we'll sometimes watch great courses and stuff. And one of them that we both really enjoyed is called The Art of Storytelling by Hannah Harvey. Oh, cool. I'm taking a note. It's very good where she goes into like both a little bit of science, but just really like here's some very cool principles about how stories work. And it's a very fun program. I learned a lot about, it's more implied, like I say, she's not doing a lot of science there, but you see these principles of what is so compelling in storytelling, right? It's very cool. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite examples of this is like the Transformers movies. Like we can all agree, not so great. <laughs> what? <laughs> Whereas the Avengers movies, pretty good. Like they're fun. And I remember when people were trying to explain why they didn't like the Transformers movies, they would say, oh, the CGI, it's just so much CGI. It's just a big cartoon. But you know, the Avengers movies are pretty much cartoons. Even more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even more. <laughs> so clearly it's another example of like, it's very easy to come up with a biased and lazy justification for the thing that you are feeling. And in this case, the laziest thing to come up with is, oh, the CGI. But what's really taking place is they aren't hitting certain storytelling beats and they aren't telling a story in a certain way. They're denying you a certain kind of characterization and act structure and setting and tone that makes it easy to enjoy even a movie that's just nothing but cartoons and superheroes punching each other. What are you into next, David? Genius. Actually, in about two weeks, I'm going to hand over the proposal for this next book that I'm working on. I'm very excited about it. I should take a break, but I also worried I'll forget how to write if I do that. So <laughs> that's definitely going to happen. <laughs> when I turned the manuscript in for How Minds Change, I immediately went on a cross-country road trip to do a audio documentary for a company called Himalaya. They reached out to me and asked, hey, have you got any book ideas you haven't written? And, oh yeah, I said, I have one that I've always wanted to do, which is like, what does that word even mean? Genius. And I wanted to put a story that had two, sort of like a double helix type storytelling thing about articulating the ineffable and the power of words and taking ideas and abstractions and articulating them in a way that allows us to think in new ways. And then the way that that has an infinite recursion to it. I wanted to talk about that. And I also wanted to talk about how ideas can evolve 
and as they evolve, the question is updated every time the idea that tries to map onto the answer comes along. So like when you define genius, it then changes your concept of genius so that you now ask a different question, which becomes its own feedback loop. And I love these two concepts. And I also had noticed that so many people would just throw the word around, like, you know, Elon Musk is a genius or whatever. And I'm like, genius, you mean like Beethoven genius? But then I ask myself, what do I mean when I say Beethoven genius? And is this intelligence? Is this creativity? What does the word mean? Because we all have that feeling and we're in the presence of it or we're witnessing it or we see something that seems like an active genius. But it felt like a very nebulous term to borrow from what you just said earlier. This felt very difficult to parse and to define. So I went on this journey for about six months where I spent time with intelligence researchers. I spent time with people who were extremely high IQs. I spent all day with this wonderful young girl named Juliet who has 155 IQ. And then I was the first journalist ever allowed to go to Mensa headquarters. I spent all day with them. I just went all over the place with this concept. I even got to hang out with while Hans Zimmer was doing the Dune soundtrack. I was in the next room talking to the producer. It was wild. So I'm going to take that idea. I've already talked to my publisher about it. This is going to be the next book, and I'm going to go back on the road and add a lot more material to it and explore it really deeply, this concept of what is the nature of this, not just the word, but the idea and how those two things interplay. And I want to explore that as, as my next big project. You know, I just can't help asking, doesn't it imply something to do with almost being possessed or yeah it does <laughs> keep going by keep a spirit going. of this particular topic or something the origin of the word genius goes back to roman times the, the concept of the genii which is these spirit yeah, that's where i'm coming from yeah, yeah it's a spirit realm of entities and when you are brought into the mortal realm across the veil of their concept of the spiritual domain, you are bestowed with your personality, your talents, your obsessions, your passions. And that is what they considered your genius. And over time, as that word and idea mutated, you know, people who did incredible things, they would say, you know, they're genius at play, but it kind of became a word for a particular thing, like an extraordinary. Yes. In this book, I'm going to go all the way back to that, but then I'm going to take us all the way around to say, that is the, actually the better definition. The first definition was the right definition because- Because it can be a genius of creativity or a genius of math, can be any kind Even more of so than that, it's that the people who have created things that we would consider works of genius or that who we do consider genius- tend to be people who were given a very particular privilege, which is they were allowed to not only discover their passion, but then play within their passion until they ran across what they call a discontinuity. And it was either a way to make sense of the world that had never been made sense of in that way, a different kind of abstraction, or they were able to take something that seemed like a problem and show that it wasn't a problem at all. It was just in how it was being approached. And there's all sorts of other examples. There's discontinuities in every silo from art to music, to dance, to mathematics, to physics, to anything. And the thing that kept coming up for me was that IQ is pretty much unrelated. IQ just allows you to do certain things faster than other people. If somebody's explaining to you the rules of a board game, the more quickly you go, huh, I got it. That's pretty much what IQ is for. The people who have created incredible works of genius or who are considered geniuses, IQ doesn't really map onto it very well. So I found that beautiful in that that's the original idea after all this mutation turns out to have been the better way to talk about that word or use that word. And one other thing I'll add to it that I love, this is why I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. When I was looking at the history of the word, the Romans had this thing where they would, uh, the day of your birth, you'd burn a little cake and sing a little song as a hymn to the a member of the genii, the spirit that brought you into the world to thank them for it, to thank them for the gifts they had bestowed upon you. 
And that's the origin of the birthday party. Come on. <laughs> it's so amazing. That is a celebration of the genius that is within you. And I want to talk about how we can organize a society. We can just tweak the knobs a little bit in a lot of different domains to make it more likely that all of us can discover that and experience that. I think that's really fantastic. That's so cool. I can't wait to read whatever you come up with for your genius book. David, it's been a pleasure as always to have you on the show. I'm going to wrap up here now, but thank you so much for coming by. I know you've been super busy, so I really appreciate it. Oh, well, this was a bomb and a salve. I always appreciate spending time with you, so I feel like I should thank you. Well, we'll thank each other, and hopefully we'll have you back on again soon. Sure thing. Always. Always happy to be here. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com or check the show notes inside your podcast player. Michael Taft's podcast is Deconstructing Yourself, and you can find it at deconstructingyourself.com. He also offers guided meditation at The Alembic, that's in Berkeley, California, and you can find them at their website, berkeleyalembic.org. You can find my book, How Minds Change, wherever they put books on shelves and ship them out in trucks. Details are over at davidmccraney.com, and I'll have all that in the show notes as well, right there in your podcast player. On my homepage at davidmccraney.com, you can find a roundtable video with a group of persuasion experts featured in the book. You can read a sample chapter. You can download a discussion guide. You can sign up for the newsletter, read reviews, and more. This podcast, for all the past episodes of this podcast, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter. I will call it that forever. At David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Yes, it was a blog before it was anything else. And now I'm stuck with that name as long as Twitter exists. We are also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, this whole thing, that this this person who is me that makes podcasts, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. This is a one-person operation. I don't have any helpers or editors or anything. I really like it that way. So pitching in really helps. And you get the show ad-free. But at the higher amounts, you get posters and T-shirts and signed books and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And the absolute best way to support the show is just tell somebody about it. Tell someone you know about an episode that really landed for you, that really gave you something that you could take away from it. And uh, check back in in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.